This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In this age of digital technology and and the digital business sector, even the companies that have been disruptors over the last decade or so can't afford to rest on their laurels. For if they do so, they face the chance of being disrupted themselves. A new white paper by Saikit Chowdhury looks at examples of exactly just this issue. Saikit is executive director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and an adjunct associate professor of management here at the Wharton School. Great to see you again. Good to be here again, then. So uh, let's get into the, into the guts of the paper. Tell us what was the process of putting it together and, and uh, what were you looking to, to accomplish with it? Absolutely. If I may take a minute and just let uh, people know about what the Mac Institute is, it'll give yep. the context. Uh, so we are the largest research center uh, here on campus focusing on innovation management. And our mission is to promote thought leadership on managing innovation, but also apply it to practice. And so uh, we like to work with firms as well as industry and, and bring our thought leadership to it. Why that's important is because as part of this effort, we do conferences and other activities and projects together with firms to understand what are the key challenges. And what we really focus on is less the startup phenomenon, more what the established industry leader faces. All these firms, you know, which you hear about that are at the top, including the likes of Google nowadays, who are no longer the agile disruptors, um, but uh, are being challenged by others. And of course, the IBMs, the GEs, and other automakers, pharma players. So that's where this comes from. And I have to give a shout out to Pragna Kohli, who is uh, a research associate at the uh, Mac Institute and uh, an MBA alum uh, of ours. Uh, and uh, she did a lot of the heavy lifting for the paper, and uh, that's why her name's on there too. But um, um, it's great. And, and now to your question. I mean, I think that, you know, delving into it, Digital disruption is something that's uh, really across the board, across sectors, affecting all kinds of firms. And what do we mean by that? We have cloud, we have big data, we have uh, automation, we have artificial intelligence, robotics, additive manufacturing, mobility, all these things you hear about. And what's important about that is they're fundamentally changing the, um, the nature of products, processes, and business models across uh, different firms and industries, and thereby posing a challenge, but also an opportunity. But if you look historically, this disruption is not something realistically that's catching people off guard. It's something that people are having to adjust to. Like if you would go back, you know, 30 years, 40 years, when the computer was actually just, that was disruption that that truly was kind of catching people off guard. This is is something a little bit different, isn't it? It is. Um, I think you hit upon two points which seem uh, perhaps paradoxical to people. On the one hand, and we also argue this, Digital disruption is uh, another form of disruption. In that sense, there's a lot we can learn from past disruptions, right? Right. So um, disruptions happen from time to time. Each one has its unique flavor. And this one happens to be based on digital technologies. And so what you're referring to, let's say, when we moved from vacuum tubes to semiconductors, that was a revolutionary technology that uh, changed uh, the course of the semiconductor industry and computing as a result. What's different about this is we can see it happen. It is nonetheless challenging, though, and in some sense people would argue more challenging because the pace at which the developments are occurring are different. And if you look at it, a lot of incumbents are being displaced. So just look at the taxi industry and what Uber is doing to them or the hotel industry and Airbnb. And, um, you know, that's just on the front end. Uh, On the medical fields, we have things happening in fintech. You've got peer-to-peer potential um, through social media, which are challenging to challenging to the banks because they may disintermediate them. Um, what's 
what's good about this, in some sense, for the incumbents is, as you know, we can observe what's happening. And secondly, in some sense, in many areas, you could imagine an ecosystem of players emerging. It's not going to be just get rid of the old and replace with the new. Right. Um, so in finance, you'll see that you know it's unlikely due to compliance and regulation that all the banks are going to disappear. But what might happen, and we see this happening already, is partnerships between banks and small startups um, or acquisitions of the like or, or relationships of that sort. Whole ecosystems may compete where yeah. both have to combine. Same thing in the auto industry. Well, it means – and playing off of what you just said, it means that the companies themselves have had to make a shift to a degree on the fly of what their expectations are for their company and – what their growth strategy, what the, what their focus is 10, 15 years down the road. Because as you mentioned, there are so many other people that are trying to get into specific sectors and try and get under and get past what something like Google has done or Amazon has done. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you entirely. And a lot of it's about shifting mindsets. It's always been like that when you have a, a challenge. A good example that we have, and I want to give credit to the participants of a conference we hosted at our San Francisco conference uh, campus last year on digital disruption, where there were participants there who uh, informed a lot of this white paper. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, uh, the insights that came from it is indeed that you have to shift your mindset. But more than that, maybe uh, reshift the priorities and mission of the firm. So a Nissan, for instance, thinks of itself more as a mobility solutions company now. Right as opposed to a car maker as in the past. Because the way people consume cars or use them might change in the era of autonomous vehicles, but also in the era of ride sharing. And so they have to reconceptualize what they do and and add the services for it. You mentioned a company actually we've talked about a lot recently, which is surprising because of where they are right now, uh, Kodak. And what they could have been if they would have made the shift to digital and, and not continued to rely on the traditional film camera. I mean, they had the technology waiting for them, ready to, to really advance it, and they didn't do it. And we've seen what has happened or not happened with Kodak over the last decade. Yeah, that's part of the pain. Oftentimes, the uh, innovators are the ones who come up with things. So the auto industry has that example, too. GM and others were the ones who worked on alternative uh, source of fuel. It was the Japanese makers who really took that and commercialized it. But coming back to Kodak, that's the classic example of disruption. And we go back to it because, and it's so relevant, not only because it displays all the dynamics of the difficulty, we call it the inertia, of not only react, uh, observing but also reacting to the changes that are happening. Right. But it was a digital disruption, most literally, because we moved from chemical imaging to digital imaging. What's unique about that case and why it was, you know, both sad on the one hand, but also gives hope, Kodak could have, um, this played out over a number of of years, over about a decade. And, you know, the power of digital didn't really, in that sense, come into being in photography until we got the internet, because then sharing became more important than image quality. yeah. And uh, so they could have responded at many junctures. So that's what makes it particularly sad, but it also gives us hope because you could have taken action. The other example here is Blockbuster and Netflix. Yeah, I wanted to bring them up anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, Yeah. and that goes back to your original point about, you know, what's different now versus earlier and the pace of things, right? So, um, yeah, it's been a number of years now, maybe a decade or so since we have Netflix around, but it's not that old uh, in the grand scheme of things. And, uh, you know, Blockbuster actually had the opportunity to buy Netflix Mm -hmm. at one point, Um, but uh, they chose not to. And their offering online didn't work out, Netflix did, 
And um, that's more the decision-making which led to problems. And it, it makes you wonder, just specifically that case alone, uh, let's just theorize for a second that Blockbuster does buy Netflix. Does that combined entity become as big as Netflix is now? Or did the structure that Blockbuster have in place, would that have taken down Netflix, and both of them would have been out of the mix. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're getting to a subject that's close to my heart as well, which is external sourcing of innovation. I mean, of course, whether you do partnerships or acquisitions, um, it's not easy to implement those, right? That's right. An, a problem in and of itself. If they had not been able to manage them properly, that would have also been uh, an issue. So it's not that simple. You're getting to another underlying point, which I want people to realize, though, which is that we we often talk about these incumbents who fail. Uh, RIM is another example, you know, and... Uh, um, you know, we made BlackBerry and Nokia and, and Borders and the like. But it's not about managerial stupidity or foolishness. Um, it's about how do we respond? And it's tough. It's yeah. about trade-offs. If you're an established firm, you've got customers, you've got standards, you've got scale. Um, you can't just leave all that aside and go after every new thing, especially because it's hard to distinguish the noise yeah. from the actual signal. There are thousands of new ideas and, and promising new things which come 999 of which won't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's just, that's the problem that we have. I, I wanted to bring up BlackBerry as well because uh, you have it in, in the paper, but also just what BlackBerry has gone through over the last decade or so. And, and there has been part of my thinking in the last few years that as BlackBerry has shifted, instead of just being a retailer that is selling smartphones, uh, to now more of a technology company, that they may have the opportunity to kind of make that shift and build up. So I, I guess the question is, is do you think that they can do that and be that strong company they were 15 years ago? I think that's a, a great point. You know, um, reinventing yourself and how you transform in the face of these challenges isn't just, there isn't no one answer or right answer. Right. Um, so we can say that BlackBerry, what's sad about the BlackBerry case is that they had the corporate market, which is the lucrative one, and yeah. people still love the keyboard. Yeah. And Apple originally was a consumer company. They made a lot of money, but they really, that's what they're good at. And BlackBerry could have just simply learned how to do, you know, the good features from Apple and perhaps kept the corporate angle, which people loved so much. I mean, many people, myself included, right. uh, we moved to uh, the touchscreen, but we really loved for email purposes the, the keyboard. But um, the reinvention now on the positive side, I mean, it's got, the firm has got a lot of patents and technologies. Um, it's got to focus on software now. It was always much stronger because of its corporate focus on the security side, which is key, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, especially in smartphones. And so it's reinventing itself along those lines. So um, I think your, your point is very valuable. The way we define core capabilities in a company um, is very fundamental. So it's not yeah. necessarily to do with products and services. Look at, uh, and, and, you know, BlackBerry could have a good future. Look at IBM. Um, IBM started as a computer maker, I sure. mean, yep. essentially, right? And yep. servers and everything came too. They sold their PC business to yep. Lenovo at one point and even their server business and have refashioned themselves as an e-business originally uh, company. And people don't, we don't use that term anymore, but really to service, um, be a service provider yeah. for uh, all these global corporations. And it takes a lot of guts to do that. General Electric, basically in the same type of manner, going from what they were 
for, for those of us that are older, old enough to remember GE back in the in the days of the '60s <laughs> when they would have the TV commercials for the light bulbs, how they have shifted their philosophy instead of being in retail selling light bulbs and fixtures and all kinds of things to what they are now. Absolutely. Um, they're in the aerospace business. They're in the medical systems. And energy. Now, energy. Yeah. And, and uh, now they're actually very, very big in the digital space. Yeah. Um, they're embracing, and this is a great example of how you go about this. It takes time, but you have to make investments over time so you don't run into problems and, and react too late. They've been proactively building up their digital business. Why? We talk about digital disruption more on the front end often, the consumer apps, which help you manage your life better, for example, right. and, and uh, take vital statistics, and which are great for the healthcare sector. But on the back end, the Internet of Things apply to the industrial side and improving how factories work, right? Sure. Smart factories. Yeah. That's where the big productivity gains which, are. Which makes you think, uh, looking forward, whether or not we actually could see a little bit of a, of a recovery in manufacturing. Because if a lot of these factories are making that shift to the Internet of Things and we're improving the factories – you know, can't we see that growth come back at some point down the road? Yes. And, you know, there's a there's a whole political debate around this, which I don't want to get into. But what I will say is, I think that manufacturing is going to era, uh, undoubtedly around the world enter a new age, right? We're, we're moving to automation. We're moving into smart factories. And this is the advantage that the um, advanced economies have. Right. Because, you know, a country like the United States, you know, huge country. Not everybody can be in the services sector. Not everybody can go to Silicon Valley and be part of a programmer or work on the latest app, right? right or work right. at Lyft or wherever. And uh, manufacturing, in whether in 3D printing form or otherwise, you know, we will have manufacturing. It might be smart manufacturing and a lot of robots in there, but we will need people to do that. I absolutely think it's necessary to move to that level. Countries like Germany, they have something called Industry 4.0. Um, and a number of firms are, are moving in that direction. Smart factories is a big priority that's mandated by Germany and the EU, even uh, through regulation. And uh, all of them, right, all these big manufacturing powers, um, uh, Japan, of course, are looking to really strengthen and advance and move to the next level. I fully agree with but, you. But also talk about how mobile has has kind of invaded this, uh, this sector as well. And, and really, it is it has laid down a framework where, and look, I mean, I've got my smartphone here. You've got yours, I'm sure, handy nearby. We all live on them. So the mobile technology end of things just has has the opportunity to really have so many of these sectors explode over the next uh, over the next decade or two. Absolutely. Mobile has become the ubiquitous medium, which has enabled so many things, whether it's uh, communications connectivity around the world, including the emerging markets. Um, but every single application you can think of. You know, we can monitor your vital statistics, yep. and uh, it'll help you manage your health better, especially if you have a, a chronic disease. So the healthcare firms are, are benefiting from that, and the patients too. Um, we've got apps to do all kinds of things, booking tickets, you know, and, and all of that. And now look at a different area, financial inclusion. So um, here, I'm, I'm, you know, since we have a global focus, I want to go to emerging markets. In emerging markets, say, take China, India, and Africa, mm -hmm. It, uh, it would be tough to build up the banking infrastructure like we have it uh, elsewhere. Sure. Same thing with yeah. telecom. Yeah. And by having the mobile medium, 
you can have essentially virtual banks, right? Yeah. And yeah. peer-to-peer lending, but even by the traditional banks and cover that so beautifully. So the power of mobile, it's another medium. Just like the internet for us was absolutely revolutionary and yeah. you and I got to see the uh, pre-internet era sure. and the post-era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And mobile is doing the same thing, which is why a lot of firms like Facebook and others are shifting more of their effort now on the mobile platform. So then how much do you think we are going to see growth come because of the mobile in other parts of the world, you know, not the U.S., not Europe, not Asia, but, you know, some places like Africa, South America, where where we have the opportunity to have that technology build up so many different pieces of economies. Absolutely. I think that's going to happen, and we already see it happening. In fact, Kenya is one of the leaders when it comes to uh, banking uh, and uh, on mobile uh, platforms and applications. And in simple ways, you know, through SMS, uh, you know, text messaging and the like. And I think that's absolutely going to enable um, the world to be more connected in these applications. Um, So there's no doubt about the potential of this technology and this platform, more importantly. We are joined in studio by Saika Chowdhury of the uh, Mac Institute. He is their their director, Mac Institute for Innovation Management. He's also an adjunct associate professor of management here at the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. It's interesting. You also talk in the paper not only about the companies being the innovators, but the companies taking advantage of their consumers who are another kind of level of innovator for the company as well. Yes. And you can look at that in multiple ways. I mean, uh, users on the one hand provide a lot of data and information. And so what we can do is aggregate all that information from these apps based on your usage. And that's what these Ubers do. That's what the Amazons do to recommend things to you. That's what uh, all these healthcare apps do as well uh, to improve your lifestyle, but aggregate the information and help the process. So that's more of a process side. In terms of product too, um, we have that. So we've got firms, uh, let's say the doctors here at the University of Pennsylvania at uh, the hospital, Uh, Many physicians utilize different devices uh, in various ways. They have to come up with their own workaround solutions to get things done. Great example of user innovation. Lego, which may be more familiar to people. You know, you can send in your ideas. And that's really, I think, powerful. It's part of this iteration. You know, we were talking about earlier how things are moving fast now in the era of disruption now, digital in particular, but in general. And so all the sources you can get in your ecosystem, and that includes your stakeholders, your suppliers, your, your customers as well, as well as other companies that are, are in your ecosystem, maybe even competitors, they are very much part of this uh, exercise. And uh, it, it has to be iterative. You can't, you can't foresee the world and where it's headed. You have to respond and react quickly. But let me ask you this, playing off of that, though. Uh, one of the big topics we see with a lot of companies right now is shareholder value. Mm-hmm. And shareholders want A, B, and C. Well, in this case, with all the innovation and technology, A, B, and C might not necessarily be the the present, the past, the future. It might be you know versions of that. So, are, are we seeing maybe even a little bit of 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 the headbutting, you know, between what the shareholders expect and what the company expects? You know. Uh, this has been an age-old question, which is, you know, to what extent can shareholders see the long term as well, right? right. So that's really the problem with this quarter-to-quarter system um, and the pressures on the CEOs. Yeah. I think, though, that shareholders are a little bit open because they, too, realize things are moving very quickly. So when it comes to a GE, when GE says, listen, it's going to take us 10 years to figure out a solution in energy, or it's going to take us three years to really get this uh, IIoT, inter- the Industrial Internet of Things, uh, initiatives going before you see the actual returns. Right. 
they're willing to go with that. I think what's important for shareholders is you actually come up with um, revenue streams. And this is what Google, you know, if I may bring in a very uh, admired and I admire them too company, um, their challenge has been that, uh, look, you've got the business, the search business um, and related businesses, all of it's geared towards advertising. They have mm-hmm. one business yeah. model. Yeah. They make some money off of the uh, the mobile, the Android side, but you know, honestly, it's others like the handset makers and the service providers, the AT&Ts and T-Mobiles, who make a lot of the money and, and uh, capture a lot of that value. So they've been looking for ways to commercialize. A lot of cool products and services. That's what was very smart for Google to divide into the mainstream Google and the alphabet portions, you know, which sure. don't yet have the commercialization ability. Cisco is another great example. I mean, obviously a great firm, total market leader when it comes to telecom solutions, doing a lot of great things, leveraging external sources of innovation like acquisitions very well. But of course, in the era of software invading uh, the networking space, they've got to reinvent themselves. So they've got to strike that balance, you know. Yeah. Um, Robbins, as their uh, CEO or, you know, fairly new CEO of, you know, how do we keep the cash flow going today, but also show them we're active in cloud, on the software side, and, and other areas which we need to be to remain in the market-leading position in the future. So uh, going back to uh, the the example of IBM for a second and how they shifted from being a, you know, a computer retailer to what they are now, What's that industry going to look like? Because obviously there is there is still a small need for PCs, but because we all have a computer on our phone or we have a laptop uh, or we have a, a, a tablet of some kind, you know, are we going to see some of these companies kind of morph into what IBM has tried to do over the last decade? Absolutely, because what you see is the convergence. It's not clear to us Let's say in the Internet of Things, where everything's connected, will it be the software platform manufacturers, the makers who will dominate? Will right. it be the hardware makers? Who is it? Will it be the chip manufacturers? So, you know, everybody's vying for that, and, and they're working on that. Let me you just uh, play with you a little and, and, and uh, take that vision a little further. I see no real reason for us to have a tablet and a laptop and a smartphone. Right. Yeah. The only reason is yeah. we've got physical limitations. As soon as the materials are there and improved and we're making progress towards that, you'll be able to unfold your smartphone so it has a keyboard and a larger screen <laughs> and use it as a laptop um, and as a tablet because you can touch it as well and then fold it all up and stick it in your pocket again and go about your business. So I'm waiting well, that, for that day. And that's one of the things you're seeing now with the potential of the laptop ban is you're seeing more and more of these digital keyboards coming up that connect right right to your smartphone so that you can do a lot of that work instead of having the laptop out. Yes, I'm still hoping with all my travels that that right, uh, yeah. band doesn't get expanded, but we're, you're absolutely right. And uh, what we could see is, you know, an aircraft, uh, perhaps you'll have a screen, connect your smartphone to it, um, you know, with a keyboard, and, and that might be going in that direction. But it's another case of potential adaptation, because actually airlines have been removing screens um, and giving you places to put it by saying, we're going to give you Wi-Fi access and we're going to be uh, able to give you the ability to stream. Yeah. But we may actually need the screen back um, if we uh, and the keyboard or something added to it uh, if uh, uh, we head in a certain direction. So that's adaptation for you. you we talked a, a little bit ago about the importance of the consumer uh, and, and how they can kind of be an innovator in this process. But it still is at the core in many cases the company understanding and listening to the consumer and taking that information and improving what they do. That's one of those core things that really hasn't changed a ton over the years. 
No, it hasn't. And why it's important is, um, you know, today data supports this. So, so today it's not me necessarily observing what you're doing in physical form. IBM hired anthropologists to do that, and it's still yeah. there. Um, IDEO does that too. But it's about me gathering all your data about your usage, which these Ubers and Amazons can do, and then tailoring products and services on that basis. So I think it's there. But there is a limitation. The limitation of users is they won't necessarily see what's far out there. You know, there's a limitation to what we can envision. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the ingenuity of someone like a Steve Jobs is necessary who dangles something like an iPhone or especially an iPad, which got yeah. a very negative reaction initially. People said, oh, that's just a bigger iPhone. Yeah. And then, you know, you kind of start seeing how you might use it. But he had the vision to see what might be out there. So the truly revolutionary uh, changes that are going to happen will still be a bit more push than pull, and then they can be informed and refined uh, in order to, um, you know, by the by, and with the customers. So it's the company which will have to take a fundamental role still. You have a, a section in the, in the paper, and I wanted to have you kind of describe it. Uh, it's titled Innovate Innovatively. Uh, and I will let you go at it because I, I, my mind kind of swirled a few times when I, when I was going through that. Yeah, it was meant to be catchy. Yeah. But um, the point of it is that you know, ultimately how we're going to stay ahead and how any organization is going to stay ahead um, is by you – know, you it's not possible to predict the future and where things are headed. It's more important to track what's going on and adapt. Okay. And the message that we want to send is it's okay to leverage all kinds of sources. Procter & Gamble had this crowdsourced model co- called Connect and Develop in order to get uh, problems solved by chemists and the scientists around the world. Cisco buys a lot of firms. Intel has been good at uh, investing in firms. And Google and others do the same thing. It doesn't just have to be your own in-house engine. In fact, even the best firms that we most admire today, um, like the Apples, for example, too, I mean, you know, um, buying Beats and so forth, right? You can't come up with every new technology or every new capability yourself, so you have to look outside. And that's what we mean by it. Um, The challenge with it is you have to be good at everything now. You have to uh, be good at deciding all right, here's when I use organic, here's when I use partnerships, here's when I use um, acquisitions. And you have to be good at implementing them, to your Mm -hmm. point earlier. And so you really have to innovate innovatively. Ultimately, if your processes and your organization are not up to the task, then even with the best strategy of wanting to stay ahead of the curve all the time, you won't be able to execute on it. That's what we mean by it. Great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. You got it. Saika Chowdhury uh, joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.